A very warm welcome back to A Dream and a Fear. We have just concluded a first for us. We've done our first in-person discussion with Jonathan Aiken, former politician, some of you may know, turned priest, now practicing in Pentonville. A fruitful life, to say the least. But we were speaking to Jonathan to discuss his book, on John Newton, who had an equally fruitful life, started his life out as a slaver and turned to God and eventually was influential in leading sort of the abolitionist movement that inevitably abolished slavery. So we discussed that and also just the parallels that Jonathan drew uh, with his life and also John Newton's. All in all, a very enjoyable podcast. So without further ado, I will leave you in the warm embrace of Jonathan Aiken. A very warm welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much, firstly, for letting us into your lovely home uh, just down the road from us, actually. Um, just to really set the tone, can you tell us a bit about uh, John's early life? And how was it that he ended up in uh, working within slavery? John Newton was born in 1725 in East London, very near the Tower of London. In those days, there was a kind of harbour known as the Pool of London. And he was born there because his father was a sea captain, and a very good one, nothing to do with slavery. His father was a renowned seaman and sea captain. Newton's mother was a very devout schoolteacher who I think was instrumental in planting a few seeds in mm. Newton's life because she took him to church uh, at least three times a week, if not more. And there was a famous uh, pastor of the church who still lives in uh, legend because his name was Isaac Watts. Mm. And Isaac Watts, again, was a famous preacher and hymn writer. He wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Handel was a contemporary, oh. and Handel, um, who wrote hymns as well as great oratorios, uh, and Joy to the World by Handel was performed in Newton's church when he was a boy. So he had a sort of background of uh, Christian teaching, but it ended very early because his mother died. And it's fair to say that in his early youth, Newton could be characterized by the adjective feral. He was really wild. Um, he was things which uh, we don't necessarily rate as fiercely wild today, but he was a terrible blasphemer. Mm. His oaths uh, were legendary. His bad behaviour was legendary. Um, the only good thing perhaps about him is that he went on voyages with his sea captain father and learned something about seamanship. Um, but he, on the whole, was nothing but a bad boy in his early uh, youth, teenage years. And he um, was press-ganged by the Royal Navy um, somewhere near Deal or Dover um, when he was a teenager. So he uh, learnt seamanship further when, as a young naval seaman, but he was no good in the Navy at all. He behaved badly, uh, so much so that he actually deserted from the Royal Navy, but was captured and he was flogged for his desertion on board on the quarter deck of um, a warship, which is what happened to deserters. And um, he then, um, in disgrace and 
was extremely sore back from the flogging, um, was on a voyage um, to, I think, the, um, South America or somewhere with the Royal Navy. Um, and then um, he was something very odd, it sounds to us, but he was exchanged uh, in a port, I think it was somewhere in Madeira or something like that, um, for a Royal Navy sometimes swapped um, sailors from their ships by compulsory recruiting better sailors from mm. civilian ships. Mm. And they thought Newton was awful, was a badly behaved, <laughs> um, deserting. So they rather gladly swapped him uh, and got uh, two men, two sailors from the warship were swapped. And Newton ended up on a um, stranger on a slave ship, um, or at least a slave supply ship, going to Africa, going to mm. West Africa. And on this ship, he managed to behave badly too, um, and upset the captain no end. But when he got to what we would now call West Africa, they called it the Guinea coast, that huge bulge of Africa. Uh, he um, still, um, under 21, um, he effectively jumped ship from this merchant ship he was on and started an adventurous life uh, in what would now be called something like Sierra Leone or maybe Nigeria. And very soon, he found a profitable way to earn money was to get into the slave trade, which he did in a small way at the beginning and eventually into a big way. And he led a pretty wild life of drinking, misbehaving, blaspheming, womanizing with Africans, and rounding up unfortunate natives mm. to be supplied to the slave ships. Mm. So he couldn't have had much worse mm. or more badly behaved in early life. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think Farrell is probably a good word for him, even even up until this point. Um, for, a, for a man like John Newton, how much would he have known about Sierra, the areas like Sierra Leone at the time? Well, he'd have known a lot for mm. a white man, because uh, not before he arrived, mm. but once he was there, uh, he was very active working for a slave trader whose name was Amos Cloud. And so he was in all kinds of rivers and tribal areas, basically rounding up mm. innocent black men to become slaves. Um, he had a reverse while he was working for Amos Clough. Amos Clough had a black mistress who rejoiced in the name of Princess P.I. And Princess P.I. loathed Newton for some reason, as quite a lot of people did. Uh, and um, she imprisoned him and made him a white slave to her mm. when Amos Clough was away on uh, voyages and things. Uh, so he had a very rough time of being starved and kept in a prison, uh, and, um, but he escaped and moved somewhere else in that uh, Sierra Leone, Guinea coast, and got into better slave trading activities of, of his own and was actually doing quite well, making money, and quite prosperous, um, up to the age of about 23. Mm. Wow, remarkable stuff from well, Navy, slaver, slave, mm. <laughs> then back to slaver. Um, so is it right in saying after this period as a slaver, no, after, sorry, after being, being enslaved and then a slaver again, he then ends up on the ship back to Donegal in 1748, um, how, so how long could you just sort of fill in the gap there and say how yes. he ended up there? Well, Newton survived 
and that took some doing, <laughs> on the uh, west coast of Africa um, as a slave trader, effectively, but a slave trader on the ground. He was getting people to the ships. Um, and he was living a high old life of drinking too much, boring, mm. um, badly behaving. Um, but he had some stage when he was in, in prison by Princess P.I., he'd written some heart-rending letters uh, back to his father um, in England. And his father, who had some influence as a sea captain, had said to Liverpool ship owners, look, my son is out there stranded uh, in the west coast of Africa, um, on the Guinea coast, as they call it. If any of your ships are passing by, um, try and see if you can find him and rescue him. And that wasn't quite as much of a needle in a haystack operation as it might sound, mm. because white men were so rare on that coast. And mm. um, one particular ship, called the Greyhound, was going down that coast. And the captain, uh, paused and just asked a nearby settlement, anyone heard of a white man called John Newton? And someone said, yes, he's just a mile away. Uh, he lives in a quite a comfortable villa. And so he was then gone up and persuaded to come on that ship and to sail back to England. Mm -hmm. um, the captain of the ship told him an enormous lie saying, uh, because he didn't really want to come back. He was so comfortable, mm. slave trading, living the life of Riley mm. with the natives. But um, the slave ship, this uh, captain, who was not, was not a slave ship, it was a ship called the Greyhound, um, said, look, uh, Newton, I happen to know that the reason your father wants you to come home, there's a very large inheritance awaiting you, uh, and it'll bring you in 400 pounds a year, which is about sort of 500,000 pounds a year, yeah. our money today. And he fell for this one, and so abandoned his life on the Guinea coast and got onto this ship called the Greyhound. Yeah. which was a trading ship yeah. and was heading back to London. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that his um, his mother planted Christianity deep within. Obviously, it took a while for him to realise that, but during this process, he sort of did. Can you talk us about this conversion that experience that he had? What happened was that the Greyhound, a ship, misnamed because it was extremely slow and hardly seaworthy. It had been in hot climates too long and it wasn't well um, tarred and well protected against the rough seas of the Atlantic. It stalled back towards England and a storm broke, a massively serious storm. And Newton had been in his cabin before the storm and there was only one book in the um, cabin, and it was the second most famous Christian book in the world at that time after the Bible. It was The Imitation of Christ mm. by Thomas Kempis. And Newton, out of boredom, uh, and he was doing badly on the Greyhound as well because of his blaspheming and his <laughs> bad behavior once again. But he was alone in his cabin, and the rudder was rough, and he read The Imitation of Christ. And he remembered some of the things his mothers had taught him. And he said, oh, I wonder if, if this stuff could be true or not. And almost just at that moment, uh, a huge wave crashed across the Greyhound. And the Greyhound effectively broke up. Um, it, um, a great chunk of the Greyhound was knocked uh, completely away by the 
power of this massive tidal wave. And Newton, like everyone else on board, thought he was going to die. And the storm got worse and worse. And Newton was a good sailor, because he'd been well trained by his father, some extent by the Navy. He actually took the helm of the Greyhound, he was a strong young man, and tried to steer through this tempestuous uh, mid-Atlantic storm. And as he grappled with um, the strong possibility that the ship was going to sink, he prayed for the first time for many, many years, <laughs> and said, oh Lord, if you will save me, um, I will uh, enter your service and be a man of God. Um, this didn't seem a very likely prayer to be answered, and um, maybe it was, but the real reason the Greyhound did not sink was that it was carrying a, an unusual cargo of beeswax, and beeswax was called lighter than um, most cargoes, and helped the ship to mm. stay afloat for nine terrible days um, in this big storm. Um, and Newton always described this uh, moment of prayer at the wheel as my great turning point. He never interestingly interesting used the words a conversion experience, a phrase mm. which is slang about a bit too easily. Mm. But Newton said, this is my great turning point. Mm. And after about uh, a terrible week in the storm and then some more terrible weeks when I thought they were going to die of starvation, mm. finally they got to the coast of West Ireland, mm. I think Northern Ireland, and they put into a, uh, a sort of natural harbour known as Loch Swilly. And Newton, when he got there, he honoured his side of the bargain. He entered a Londonry Cathedral, I think it was, or Londonry <coughs> Church, and started to pray and oh, yeah. became a committed Christian. Mm. Mm. And so, uh, to use your term uh, more accurately, perhaps turning point, um, you yourself are now a member of the Anglican uh, clergy, Jonathan. And it, it, do you compare, how, how do you compare your, your turning point to, to, to Newton's? Well, Newton is, I think, in every way, a much bigger figure than me. He's a worse figure than me. And he's a much greater figure than the Christian church. But I think maybe um, it is sometimes in the storms of life when we um, start to think deeply about what are our values, what are our spiritual navigation points. And my storms of life were pretty feeble compared to being almost drowned in the Atlantic, but <laughs> I did go through a period which I sometimes summarise as disgrace, defeat, divorce, bankruptcy and jail. Let's put a good royal flush of crises on land in the um, 21st century <laughs> England. Uh, so I knew, knew something about the storms of life, mm. and maybe that is a climate, one of the climates which can produce a great turning point in one's spiritual and personal life. And just uh, on your personal life, at that point, did you know about John Newton, or was it later on? I just knew about John Newton, but yeah. not really. I, um, like most people, I'd heard his name at all, I'd heard his name in connection with Amazing Grace. Yeah. Mm. I didn't know his um, story, and uh, I didn't think of writing a book about him mm. for some years after the, all my dramas. But I wanted to write about it once I knew his story, because it is, if nothing else, what they sometimes call in book circles a rattling good yarn. Yeah. Because <laughs> Newton's life story is a hell of a narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and d how did you... 
how do you think uh, Newton became so influential in the evangelist movement? Um, and yeah, contextualise well, that Newton, once he became godly and began to pray, um, he started to be swept up in the um, wonderful preaching and teaching and evangelism of the Methodists. Mm. And particularly, he heard John Wesley preach, he heard Whitfield preach, and Newton, I should say, um, after becoming a man of God, didn't absolutely get rid of all his bad habits. He went on being a slave ship captain for another five years. Mm. That was thought of it rather strangely, a perfectly respectable occupation. There were very few moral criticisms of the slave trade mm. at the time when Newton was in it. That came later. But the great reformers of the slave trade, like Clarkson and the Clapham sect and uh, ultimately Wilberforce, they didn't come on and get recognised for at least another 20 years. Yeah. Um, so Newton, he made three more voyages as a slave ship captain. Captaining, He was a good seaman mm. uh, and he was well respected in Liverpool. People knew of his father's reputation and his reputation as a seaman. So he was hired by Liverpool shipowners to do at least, I think, three or if not four uh, voyages as a slave ship captain. And he behaved maybe slightly better, so his um, admirers may be pretty badly still as a slave ship captain with all the sort of horrors of the slave trade. But he did it. And then he came back to Liverpool, um, but his God was calling him. Um, but he was calling him through the Methodists, mm. and it was those great preachers like Wesley and Whitfield, when they came to Liverpool, they found um, uh, a very willing hearer and supporter in um, the young John Newton. Mm. And just for our listeners, Jonathan, because I imagine many of them won't be perhaps aware of the intricacies of, of sort of 18th century Anglicanism, could you just summarise what at that point, what relationship did he have with sort of, I suppose, the established church and what relationship did Methodism, I suppose, right. also have? Well, at that stage in um, uh, 18th century England, um, there was the established church, mm. the Church of England, which um, was regarded as respectable, central, its churches are very well attended. Um, and then beyond their immediate um, reach were dissenters, and dissenters were Baptists, Methodists to some extent, um, uh, all kinds of non-conformists, and they were diff different and very much below the salt. And um, Newton, who started really being a kind of a Methodist, he was heard the gospel from the lips of Wesley and Whitfield and was entranced. Um, but he actually became an Anglican Church of England priest. And that took some doing. Um, and it's a very important part of Newton's story. He applied to be an Anglican priest, but it took him some time um, because the Church of England didn't entirely like the look of him. Mm -hmm. Not because of his slave trading past. The Church of England itself was benefiting from the slave trading. <laughs> that didn't bother them. No, what bothered them was, wait for it, too much enthusiasm. <laughs> now, that was a code word for being a Methodist. Mm. They were 
it's all to be sort of fire and brimstones and over the top uh, preachers. And so Newton had this track record of being a bit of a Methodist or having too much enthusiasm. But in the end, he did get ordained. Um, and the reason he got ordained was that he had a powerful patron in the shape of somebody called the Earl of Dartmouth, who was a big uh, landowner and the patron of several Church of England livings. And the Earl of Dartmouth, who was in George III's cabinet and regarded as unsound in matters of religion, George III used to refer to him as Earl of Dartmouth, that psalm singer. <laughs> so that was the worst thing to be. Um, but Dartmouth had some influence and he persuaded the Bishop of Lincoln to ordain mm. Newton as a Church of England curate and deacon. Mm. And what's more, the Earl of Dartmouth gave um, Newton a living in the parish of Olney, usually pronounced Oney, in, in Bedfordshire. And that was where Newton then settled as a respectable Church of England vicar. Mm. and actually did wonderfully well there. Mm. Just sorry, just to touch a bit, to, to expand on that slightly, did he, is it known that he sort of calmed down his, his Methodism or his Methodist aspects of it, or Methodist aspects of his preaching during, once he became ordained, or, or did he continue with his kind of uh, sort of charismatic preaching? I think Newton was careful enough um, not to sort of show that he was a fiery Methodist, mm. but at the same time, he was a different kind of preacher to your average Church of England vicar. Um, he was what's called a gospel preacher, and he preached the word, and he was very good at it. And what's more, he was also very good with his pen. He um, wrote a marvelous book called An Authentic Narrative, which really was the story of his life and slave trading and then coming to God. And that was a a big bestseller mm. and after that what might I call his testimony story uh, Newton then got a bigger and bigger following and he wrote a good many other books as well and then very interestingly he started to write hymns and he had a partner in his hymn writing who was a, um, a poet with some mental illness uh, problems called uh, Cooper it's called C-O-W-P-E-R but Cooper, who came moved into the Newton Vicarage, uh, Newton and Cooper um, produced a hymn book called the Olney Hymns, and that contains some marvellous hymns. Mm. Everyone remembers Amazing Grace, but uh, Cooper wrote some beautiful hymns. One was called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. And Newton wrote a good many other hymns, some of which I, for one, think are rather greater poetically and theologically than Amazing Grace, for example, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. Mm. It was a wonderful Newton hymn. Anyway, these two produced the Olney hymn book, which um, again had a huge influence in the Church of England, which didn't do much singing, it was starting to. And also, uh, the Olney hymn book went to America and was um, different editions were produced. Mm -hmm. So Newton had uh, really a big influence uh, in the church as a gospel preacher, as a writer, um, and as a hymn writer. Mm. He was a, a big fish, and uh, a lot of people started to say to him, mm. why don't you move out of Olney? Uh, because 
um, people would go hundreds of miles by carriage up from London to hear Newton preach. Among them, a young boy called William Wilberforce, ah. uh, who first met Newton um, when he was vicar of Olney and William Wilberforce, an unknown but well-born, mm. well-connected uh, man of a good Yorkshire family. Mm. But he came and met Newton uh, when he was preaching in Olney. And yeah, you, you mentioned Wilberforce, and I, I guess um, we begin to start to see um, uh, Newton's involvement in the abolition of slavery, particularly within England. Uh, can you tell us a bit about his role within this uh, movement early on? Well, Newton moved to London. He became uh, rector of a um, church uh, as central as you can find. It's called St Mary Woolnock. It's still here to this day, but it's a hundred yards from the mansion house in the mm. city of London. And Newton, almost everywhere he went, he doubled or trebled the size of the congregations. They had to build extra balconies, which are there to this day. Uh, and he preached on um, basically the gospel of the word. But Newton was also um, very much aware of the evils of the slave trade. and at an early stage, preached against it. Meanwhile, politically, um, a campaign was starting to roll about um, the abolition of the slave trade. And one of the first people to get involved in it was um, uh, William Wilberforce. By this time, a young MP, a young MP who'd uh, been a bit of a gambler and a playboy, but he settled down to being serious politician and he took up the cause of the slavery. And Newton, hearing that he was involved in this, wrote to Wilberforce and said, can I come and see you? And, um, uh, or maybe it was the other way around, I've forgotten which one, they made con mm. And was, I think it's Wilberforce who had to, came to see Newton in his vicarage. Mm. And Newton was such a sort of controversial figure in terms of not being part of the established church, although he was, but, uh, mm. that um, Wilberforce walked round the square three times to make sure nobody was looking <laughs> before he went in to see Wilberforce, to see Newton. And they sat down and um, Newton became an enormous influence on Newton. Uh, first of all, because he knew the slave trade backwards. I mean, he'd seen mm. every horror of it. Secondly, uh, when Wilberforce was really campaigning, he badly needed a witness mm. to how awful it was. Mm. And so Newton became sort of, um, uh, as it were, Wilberforce's visual aid, his yeah. witness. Mm. And in front of great places like the House of Commons Select Committee on the Slave Trade, a meeting of the Cabinet, um, Lords Committees, uh, Wilberforce brought Newton along as his right-hand man and authentic witness. Also, um, Newton was made of stronger stuff than Wilberforce. Wilberforce wilted at various stages of his long campaign, and it was Newton who sort of put the fire and the backbone back into mm. um, Wilberforce. And if you read the correspondence carefully, you'll see there's no doubt there were episodes when um, Wilberforce was on the verge of sort of walking away from it. And Newton goes in there and says, no, we're going to keep fighting. 
And of course, in the end, this was a marvelous combination of Newton and Wilberforce. Uh, and they persuaded Parliament, mm. the Cabinet, everybody, that the slave trade should be abolished. And, the, and Newton lived long enough um, uh, to hear the news that Wilberforce's motion, I think it was in the year 1810, had finally been passed. Mm. Uh, and that was a huge victory, obviously, for the abolitionists, mm. uh, but a matter of great pride to Newton that he'd been so helpful. Remarkable stuff. And, and just to wind it back a bit, because obviously you said that the seeds are planted by his mother of the faith, and then he had this uh, sort of um, extreme, lived the life of extremes. But even, you know, he carried on being a slaver after his initial turning point and off the coast of Donegal. So is there any sort of moment, or is it just a sort of gradual realisation that he the slave trade is wrong? Or do, is there some moment where he says, actually, I, I've finally sort of, it's, it's, it's sort of an epiphany. I think this is just a personal opinion. Yeah, I don't no, know. No, sure. But I think that Newton was very careful about not using the word conversion because mm. he didn't feel that he'd been like Saul on the road to Damascus, suddenly hit by a blinding light and everything was dramatically changed. He certainly dramatically changed to the extent he was going to give prayer and God a real try. But he didn't sort of immediately become any kind of saint, hence his three or four more slave trading missions. I think here in the 21st century, we shouldn't look too harshly on Newton for doing that. Uh, you know, just as somebody looking down on the 20th century might say, how on earth did all those terrible sinners encourage the sale of cigarettes? Mm. But our society thought cigarette smoking was absolutely fine mm. all through the uh, 20th century. and. All through the uh, 18th century, just about, people said the slave trade is fine, it's respectable. Mm. Uh, and Newton sort of went with the flow, and it took time for his um, conviction uh, to dawn. Also, it took time, I think, for his religious faith to uh, grow. Uh, another interesting thing about Newton, he was a wonderful self-educator. He'd had precious little uh, education as a child, just a bit from his mother. But even when he was um, a white slave, he'd managed to find one and only book, which was Euclid's Geometry. <laughs> and he taught himself mathematics and oh. geometry at a very high level. But when he became a Christian, he was an omnivorous reader of um, Christian books, uh, sermons, uh, and he was a wonderfully well self-educated man and theologian. And that was one of his many extraordinary qualities. He was also the most prolific writer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he, he clearly was a man of sort of extremes. Um, and do you think this is reflected more widely in his sort of character? Yes, I think um, Newton was a bit of a fanatic. He was a fanatical uh, sinner when he was a boy. Uh, and, um, and the records of we talk about being a blasphemer. It doesn't sort of ring very much in the 21st century, but um, Newton's oaths um, astonished even his fellow sailors. <laughs> the, the crudity and vulgarity and unpleasantness of his blaspheming anti-God oaths and swear words. So that was one kind of extreme. Um, and um, then I think he became a fanatical uh, Christian 
believer, nothing wrong in that, uh, <laughs> but he um, you know, went further than most people, uh, and especially in the Anglican branch of the church, is famous for gentle compromises. Mm. Newton didn't know what a gentle compromise was, mm. uh, and so he preached the word um, passionately um, and was very, very effective at it. And um, to sort of touch on the, the theological aspect, uh, Jonathan, in your biography of him, you write that Newton understood his authenticity as a Christian witness came neither from his early vices nor from his later virtues, came from how much he had been changed by God's grace. Could you just explain the importance of this idea for our listeners, please? Well, many people um, on their spiritual journeys uh, have... Uh, experiences which um, alter their behaviour, alter their um, status in society, instead of bad sinners they become good people. Um, but I think throughout the whole of Christian literature the most extraordinary Christian witnesses are those who really massively change and it's no surprise in the Gospels themselves that Peter was really uh, the worst of bad-behaving disciples, betrayed Christ, mm. made endless impulsive errors. Um, and I think, just generally speaking, um, and certainly in my pantheon of Christian heroes, they're the people who massively changed, not people who just did okay and prayed a bit more. Mm. But um, with Newton, it was a spectacular change from... Mm. A uh, violent young man, blaspheming young man, slave trader, uh, to being a, a wonderful uh, icon of nineteenth um, century evangelical Christianity. Didn't call it that in those days, uh, but he was with his gospel preaching and fidelity to the word. He was the most important influence. Uh, and when Newton um, first came to London, there was something like three gospel-preaching churches um, north of the river. Um, Newton founded a society of gospel preachers, and by the time he died, there was something like 60. He, he was very much mm. a, a forerunner of, of evangelical preaching and Christianity. Um, and, yeah, Newton's probably most well-known for his hymn, Amazing Grace. Yes. Firstly, why do you think that became so popular, and in particular, why did it become popular in America as well? Well, there's an air of mystery around Amazing Grace. Um, first of all, um, Newton was a very simple hymn, hymn writer. You only have to, there's practically no word in Amazing Grace which runs to three syllables. It's very simple, mm. the message is very simple. And its um, uh, beauty, I think, is it is the simplicity and power of its um, very well-written, rather staccato message. Mm. Uh, and he's obviously really writing about himself to a considerable extent. Mm. A wretch like me, mm. once was lost, but now I'm found. Yeah. Uh, and um, so those are the words. Um, I think we have to give some credit for the tune. And no one really knows where the tune comes from, but probably the best explanation is that um, Newton had nothing to do with the tune, but um, his hymn book, 
was taken up by a southern hymnody specialist who published books on of new hymns and he was the one who fitted the Newton words to a tune which came out of Negro spirituals in the plantations and there was a tune uh, which was known and this particular um, hymn writer used to go and listen to the um, slaves they were singing their Negro spirituals and he got this tune and he, was, he fitted it to the words of Amazing Grace mm. and then mysteriously it was taken up by Scottish bagpipers, it was mm. taken up by famous singers in America and it's just extraordinary that it has become almost the sort of spiritual national anthem of the world. Mm. And so would it have it would have got through to the plantations and to the slaves from the, the, the slave owners or, we, or the preachers? We really know very little, but I think, um, I mean, black music to this day has its own creativity, its own impact. Mm. And somehow or other, these slaves were singing this tune in the plantations. Mm. <coughs> and yeah, I guess we touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, but do you think Newton's story particularly resonates with you because of your experiences during your life? Yes, to some extent. I mean, not nearly as dramatic or as colourful as Newton, but I think anyone who feels that they've been um, saved by the grace of God, mm. made to change course by the grace of God, mm. starts to look at other people who have been written about in this category, which there are a lot. Mm. I mean, uh, but Newton is a very spectacular example. So certainly he's one of my own spiritual heroes. Yeah. And w w was there an epiphany for you, or was it a sort of slow burner, do you think? I think with me it was a slow burner. Yeah. I can't pr point to any one single dramatic moment. Um, rather like a train uh, in the old days of Europe crossing across the whole continent of Europe, you have to cross frontiers. Yeah. Um, but um, you don't necessarily know, especially on a train in the night, what frontiers you're crossing. Mm. But you do know when you've arrived mm. in, in the place where you want to be, in a new country or territory of a believing and committed faith. And that clearly happened to Newton and it happened to me. Remarkable. Mm. And um, you, it's right, you still work at Pentaville Pearson. Yes, I'm a, and uh, and you um have do you find that you've ever used uh, Newton's story to kind of inspire the the prisoners? Uh, yes, I have. I mean, agree? Newton was a prisoner. Um, mm. He was flogged. We don't do that in Pentonville anymore. And all kind of Newton was in shackles and in chains. Oh. Uh, and um, so you can read it. Prisoners love stories about other prisoners. So I do, when I preach in the chapel there, I do sometimes use Newton as a good example. Do you use yourself as an example? Um, I suppose I do. I use mm. personal anecdotes, at least, mm. uh, to, um, uh, I think, if you let a bit of your vulnerable side hang out. Mm. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> um, a dust preacher. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I guess, sort of, to round it off, um, if you were to sit down with Newton for a pint of stout or whatever it would be what do you think the one question you would ask him 
I think I might try and ask the son a question you've just really asked me, which is, um, when did you really start to be sure mm. that God's grace had entered your life? At what stage? Or was it a growing, continuous, slow burner? Mm. Uh, and I'd like to have a conversation with him on that. And just, um, sorry, just one more, just because I had it in my head from before. In terms of, would it, is it be fair to say that Newton then, you mentioned that the Anglican Church at Newton's time was a relatively dry kind of environment and quite stiff. Would it be fair to say that, you know, the wonderful sort of musical heritage of the Church of England owes a lot to Newton or, or to Methodism in general? Definitely, the Church of England owes a lot to Newton. I think in two big areas. One was the growth of gospel preaching, or as we would now call it, evangelical Christianity. Mm. That was the one. And the other was music in the churches. Um, music wasn't in the Anglican church to a very large extent. Mm. Um, there was cages and beautiful anthems written, although later than Newton. Um, and um, But the idea that hymns and psalms would always be part of uh, morning prayer, okay. a bit of it. Mm. So that all changed, and Newton was very much part of that change. Mm. Interesting. Well, thank you. One last thing you might like oh, yeah, to yeah, yeah. Uh, Please uh, go Newton ahead. Newton, in my book, has one of the great last lines, mm. deathbed lines of anybody. And um, Newton took some time dying. Uh, he lay on his sick bed, on his deathbed, and obviously some, some journalist or somebody. Popped up and said, Do you have any deathbed thoughts, Mr. Newton? <laughs> and he said, I know only one thing that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. And that was his last line. <laughs> uh, terrific. That's a good one That's to a, remember. Yeah, and a great one to end with. So, um, yeah. thank, thank you, you very, very much. much.